Well, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I know that uh, Brother Bill Barenkamp uh, preached out of this chapter a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to touch base uh, on just a couple of verses here leading into what we've been talking about, about covenant as a church. Uh, Last week's sermon laid out biblically the importance of worshiping together. Uh, Through Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer of Hebrews warns that uh, forsaking the gathering together of the believers, as some do, (laughs) is not a good path for the Christian. And the reason that we gather as Christians is because Jesus Christ himself ushered in a new covenant through his blood to redeem us. Amen? Right? So if you uh, did not listen to last week's sermon, if you were not here or if you've not listened to it on our podcast, I encourage you to go back um, and look at the the podcast from Hebrews chapter 10 um, because I'm going to take much of what uh, was taught in that sermon last week and some of this week and I'm going to be writing... Uh, a membership class out of that. Uh, so as our church grows and moves forward in the coming months and years, uh, as new people come to us and wish to be a part of this church, I want us to all kind of be on the same page. What does Scripture say about covenant, covenanting together as God's believers, as a family of God? What does that look like? Scripture tells us, right? And the, the reason that we come together is not because we're forming a, a nonprofit organization to uh, do whatever we want. We have to form a nonprofit because that's just the legal thing that churches must do in our day. We just have to do it. But we come together as God's people because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on the cross. His blood bought us. Amen. And we gather together in honor of what Christ has done and what Jesus has ushered in through the church. This this promise, this covenant of eternal life begins with the kingdom of God now. And the kingdom of God now is what we see in this building right here. It starts here, but then goes out into the community and reflects the truth of the gospel. But if we don't have a firm foundation here with each other, What we do outside of these walls don't matter. And I think the 20th century emphasis of individualism, where my Christianity is between me and God, and it doesn't matter what I do with the church because the church is not important, that has totally, totally wrecked the importance and the effectiveness of the gospel. I think it's important that we establish churches that are healthy, that churches that are strong and where we love each other and we live together in accountability and we disciple one another and we learn from each other. And from that, then the gospel is effective out there. Amen? That's, that's the goal. That's the vision because that's what Scripture shows. That's what Scripture shows. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14, and then I want to tie in a couple of other passages of Scripture with this as well. But our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 14. Please stand, if you will, in the reverence for the reading of God's Word. Paul writing to the Ephesians, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus Christ, here's what Paul says. In Him... 
we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. To God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And dear Father God, you show us in the words of your servant Paul that those who hear the truth of the gospel, who then believe in what Christ has done, who believe that their sins are forgiven through Christ's atoning sacrifice, are then given a promise of eternity. As your son Jesus Christ modeled, he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. Dear God, all of those things in succession show us exactly your purpose and your plan for the church and for the Christian and all that makes up this kingdom that you have established here in this fallen, sinful world. And so, God, I pray this morning as you... Speak to us in your word. And I do ask that, God, that you speak loudly to each and every one of us through what we hear. That, dear God, that we would be the church that you desire. That we would be the Christians that you desire. That our families would reflect your grace so that when the world sees us, they see Christ and not us playing charades or playing church. To God, you have a lot in store for this congregation. We have watched you take us through many things. We are watching you establish opportunities for ministry in the future. We don't know what that's going to entail. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know all the answers, but dear God, you do. And so you predestined this plan of salvation for all. And so, dear God, you predestine what you want for this church. Teach us in your word, Lord, we pray. Amen. The idea of covenant is a theme throughout all of Scripture, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the very end of Revelation. And you could argue that the idea of covenant is, is a theme of Scripture. And I want to, I say a theme is because it's very difficult to pinpoint one overarching theme of Scripture apart from the Gospel. And the, and the Gospel is the theme, but the Gospel is made up of multiple themes that all point to the one theme. Does that make sense? And so Scripture from God Himself to us, you could say is a roadmap, but it's also a history, it's, it's, it's poetry, it's, uh, it's teaching, it's theology, it's... Uh, it's how does God love and redeem a fallen creation? And there's a lot, it's multifaceted here. So what we read here in the book of Ephesians is what I see as the culmination of what God has done here through the history of his interaction with us as, as a fallen people. 
This idea of covenant is something that is throughout Scripture and is central to everything that God speaks about from when He makes covenants with Abraham, when He makes covenants with uh, with Moses, when He makes a covenant with David, when He makes a covenant with, with the church, when He makes a covenant through all that He does. God is issue, initiating a promise and an agreement with people who follow His Word and who embrace the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. What is a covenant, though? A covenant is really, it, it's, it's a chosen relationship, right? It's, it's, it's an interaction between two parties that is not forced, but is actually freely chosen, right? Two parties or more choose to interact and relate to one another, and this, this choice results in a binding promise to each other. That's a covenant. Now, there's a difference between a covenant and a contract. Anybody here ever signed a, a legal contract? If you've ever bought a cell phone through a cell phone company and bought your cell phone on a contract, you have committed yourself to 24 months, two years of payments for a phone that when you first bought it might have been worth what they asked, but by the time you're done, it's worth about 50 bucks. See what I'm saying? And, 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 like, if you take out a loan for a car, you're making a contract with the bank. You buy a house, you're making a mortgage contract with the bank. You're making a, a promise. Two parties are promising to have this business relationship, and both parties agree to do certain things for the relationship. Now, financially, we see where that goes. But a contract is not a covenant. And I don't want us to mistake our relationship with Christ as a contract. Even though there are promises made in our relationship with our Lord. He's made promises to us, and when we submit to His Lordship and we surrender our lives to the salvation that He gives us, there's, there's an obligation on our part as well. But this relationship as a covenant is not a contract. Much different. A contract is impersonal. It's, it's, there's no, it's non-relational, right? Can you have a relationship with your debtors? What kind of relationship do you have with, with people that you owe money to? Let's just get this paid off and not see each other ever again. Right? Hallelujah. Can we say amen? That's why they used to have mortgage burning parties. Whenever the mortgage was paid off, you'd have a celebration in the home, and you would take the mortgage and burn it in a bowl or something and celebrate the freedom. Right? We should do that with our cell phone contracts. But what do we do? When our cell phone dies, we just go and get into another contract. We're just like in this lifetime of slavery to the debtor, right? But a covenant is different. Where a contract is, imper is not personal at all, there's no real relationship per se, a covenant are promises made in a context of relationship. Husbands and wives, when you got married, you didn't make a contract. You made a covenant with each other. Those who approach marriage as a contract look for the loopholes to get out of the contract when things go south. But if you approach marriage as a covenant, that's a lifetime, that's a, that's a lifetime of commitment to one another. You are promising in the good times and in the bad, in the rich times and in the poor times, you are together. You see the difference between a contract and a covenant? 
Another way to see this is, is in family relationships. Now, you could see that family relationships, you could argue, is not really a covenant agreement because in a family, apart from the marriage, right, when, when two people get married, they form a new family, they begin the family as a covenant. But when the children come along, kids, did you uh, choose your relationship with your family or were you just there? We can all look at our families at, at the holidays, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and how many of us chose our parents and chose our cousins and our uncles and our, right, you know, that one uncle? You can't, you don't really choose that. That's just what you've been given in life. So in one way, a family begins with a covenant between a husband and a wife, but as the children come and as the, and as the family expands and grows, that relationship kind of, becomes something greater than a covenant, doesn't it? And that's what I want to see here in Scripture today. This is how God has established the purpose of covenant because it always grows into something greater. And if we see this in context to how we come together as a church, we may agree together in covenant through church membership and commitment to each other as Christians in the family of God. But does it stay just as some kind of a formalized agreement or does it become something bigger? I think that's the ultimate goal here that we see in Scripture for what God has established in His kingdom. And I argue that the church is the manifestation, it is the expression of God's kingdom on earth. So it begins as a covenant between Christ and the sinner. But then as a group of collective Christians come together we make covenant together in membership as a church, but what does it become? I think it becomes something much deeper and much more connected that goes even beyond that. So let's take a look here what Paul has to say to the Ephesians as he's writing to them in chapter 1. And Bill Berenkamp spoke a lot from chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago as he pointed out the identity that we have in Christ. As Christians, we no longer are who we make ourselves to be. As Christians, our identity becomes what Christ makes in us. We are new creatures in Christ by what Christ's blood has ushered in and the surrender that we make to him and this begging of forgiveness and repentance for our sin. Christ takes over and makes us new. And we see here in verse 11, Paul says to the Ephesian church, in him we have obtained an inheritance. See, inheritance here implies something that deals with family, right? How, how, where, where do you get your inheritance? Anybody got a rich uncle somewhere or a rich family member that you're holding out for that great inheritance someday? You're not putting any money into your retirement fund because you're just hoping and hoping that there's a, a lost family member somewhere that's going to remember you. That's not a very wise plan, but some people do that, right? Inheritance comes, we, we, comes from our family. Now, now, inheritance involves a lot of things, not just money. I mean, we think of that as money, but inheritance can be something else, right? As I, I, I want to pick on the Carr family. As I'm standing here looking at this beautiful family, they love each other. They really do, right? Eli, Katie, you're inheriting a lot from your mom and dad. I mean, just your looks, you've inherited a lot from both of them. 
Even their demeanor, the, the entire car family, you can, whenever you see them together, oh, that's the cars. Because they love each other and they act a lot alike. You've, you've inherited your mannerisms. You've inherited your, the way you speak, the way you talk to one another, the way you interact with each other. All of the families in this room, that's what happens, right? I've been told that uh, the older I get, the more and more I'm like my father, Keith Owens, who just had a birthday Friday. But I sound like him. I look like him. When I'm on the phone talking to my dad, my family tells me my dialect switches because I start talking like my dad does. We inherit things from our family. Now what we see here from Paul in verse 11 is that through Christ we have received an inheritance. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, something that Christ is going to give to us, impart to us, that only someone can impart to a family. Jesus Christ cannot change us. He cannot promise us an inheritance of eternal life unless there is something there that is may begin as this agreed promised covenant between each other, but it must become something more than that. Christ has given us something. We have obtained an inheritance from Him in verse 11. Because having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, this promised inheritance in verse 11 has been promised to us long before we ever obtained it. If you want to tie Hebrews chap- I mean Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 with the opening verses of the Gospel of John chapter 1 where it speaks about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. You read all of that. The Word, being Christ Himself, was in the beginning, long before we ever came into be. So this promised inheritance has always been there long before we obtained it. Verse 12, this promise to us that comes to us through Christ is so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of His glory. You see, in Christ, we have, we have obtained something. We, he has handed something down to us that is not obligated to give to us, but has been given to us as an inheritance. It is a promise. It is a gift. The salvation through His blood, the eternal life that we inherit. And what does that result in at the end of verse 12? That results in the praise of His glory, not the praise of our glory. So what is the purpose of, in, of this inheritance? It's not to maybe, it is a benefit to us, but ultimately the, the end goal here is to give praise to Christ and His glory. Is that not the purpose of the church? Do we want to praise our glory by meeting here together? Or do we want to praise Christ and His glory? So the purpose of us coming together is for Christ's glory otherwise. And so that is the calling of the church. As we covenant together as a congregation through the blood of Christ, He receives the glory. Amen? Now look at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13. I want to break down verse 13 and 14. This is the, the focus here of what we're going to look at. As how, What is the steps here that leads to this inheritance that we get? 
Verse 13, in him, speaking of Christ, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now verse 13, I think, really is a great argument for why a second baptism in the Holy Spirit is not biblical. So many people will argue with me, that, the, that there's two steps to salvation. Yes, we are saved in the blood of Christ, and yes, we repent of our sins, and yes, we are saved and made new. But then there's a second step that we are obligated and required to do, quote-unquote, and that's ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what does this verse tell us? That at the moment we hear the gospel... In verse 13, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the moment we heard that, and the moment we believed in Christ, at that moment we're sealed with the promise through the Holy Spirit. Period. That is the biblical, that is just one of many passages of Scripture that point to the very fact that at the moment of our salvation, at that point, We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Boom. We don't need a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. It happens at the point of our salvation. Amen? Now, the Holy Spirit's presence pours into us constantly throughout our lives, constantly working out sanctification in us throughout our entire lives, but it begins at the moment of our salvation. Now, look at at the steps here in verse 13. In Him, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we heard the word of truth. Ponder your salvation experience here. What were the steps here that led to your conversion? Right? Somewhere down the line, every one of us who are Christians, sometime in our lives, God allowed us to hear the truth. Amen? How do you know what to commit to? How do you know what to surrender to? How do you know, number one, that you need to ask for forgiveness of your sin? How do you know that you're even a sinner unless someone has told you, guess what, you're not perfect? Sorry to break your bubble, but the world doesn't revolve around you, and you are a sinner. Somebody has to speak the truth, right? Sometimes when we're looking at our precious little children, as lovely as they are, mamas and daddies and grandparents, you've got to tell them at some point, no. You've got to tell them the truth. No, you can't have that. It's not good for you. You're selfish. Sorry. Maybe not be that harsh and direct, but that's... See where we're going? God Himself tells us through His Holy Spirit, you are a sinner and you are separated from God's presence. That's the truth. But the social gospel, the name it and claim it gospel, the my, make my own church gospel tells me that's a lie. But that's not biblical. The truth of the Scriptures tells us that every one of us are sinners. We've heard the truth. We've heard that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We heard the truth. 
And that truth led us to understand and hear the good news that there is hope through Jesus Christ that we can be saved from this sinful state we're in. We can be saved from our sinful selfishness. We can be saved from our individualism. It was individualism not the problem in our churches in the 20th century and even into the 21st century. All of our churches have become, it's all about what makes me happy. Now, is it important for churches to serve the needs of the congregation? Absolutely. Is it important for the churches to pray about how to teach and disciple the children, the next generation as they come through? Yes. But does that mean that we tailor our church around entertainment needs of the next generation? No. We teach them the gospel. We teach it to them through Bible study. We teach it to them through fun things like vacation Bible school. We teach it to them through living it out. We teach it to them by being Christians ourselves and being Christian families at home. Amen? Sometimes that means, you know, the gospel is fun. Living as a Christian is fun. But that doesn't mean that we tailor the fun to our entertainment needs. The gospel of our salvation tells us that, number one, through the word of truth, we're sinners. And the good news is, that's what gospel means, is that we can be saved from that sin. And as we hear these words, as we hear this message, we then, through that, we believe in Him. You see these three points in verse 13? That right there is the steps to salvation. That's the gospel message right there. You want to talk some... There is such a thing as the Romans road, which is wonderful, and you take people through, was it five different passages of Scripture just in Romans? Leading them to the gospel? Absolutely, I think that's awesome. But if you don't have time to find five different passages of Scripture, go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Right there's the steps. Boom, boom, boom. We hear the truth that we're sinners. We then hear that there is good news, there is hope that we can be saved. And then we believe that Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. And at that moment of belief, at that moment of trusting Jesus Christ, that He has saved us through His blood, at that point in verse 13, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Promise. We're guaranteed. God promises us to us. Now all of this results in a covenant Jesus Christ has ushered in a new covenant with His blood. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 10. Once we have this covenant with Christ, because that point of salvation that we see here, there there seems to be two things going on. Number one, God Himself has promised through His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And we, through hearing the truth, hearing the gospel, believing in the gospel that that we can be saved, we then commit back to Christ. We promise to serve Him. We promise to love and obey Him. We promise because He has forgiven us, we want to belong to you. So there is that initial step of a covenant going on here. Amen? The Holy Spirit is a promise here. The presence of God. You, you want to understand the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is really simply this. Holy Spirit is God's presence. Yes, there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three personalities of of God Himself, three separate manifestations of, if you want to say, yet somehow they're one. 
It's not three different gods. It's not God one day is going to be the Father and another day is going to be the Son and another day is going to be the Holy Spirit. It is all three of these things expressing God's essence at one time. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us. That's the best way to understand the Holy Spirit. Because what, has, what was the problem before salvation? We are separated from God's presence. Sin separates us from the very presence of God. At the moment of salvation, God's presence is now restored with us. The Holy Spirit is God with us. His presence. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, is God in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is God's continued presence with us forever. So this promised Holy Spirit actually implies a relationship as well, doesn't it? So this relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the salvation that is only offered through Him, initiates a covenant between God and His people. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it right here in the New Testament with the church. But we have to remember here that there's language here in this passage about inheritance. And the Holy Spirit here in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God through the Spirit here, is the guarantee that we have an inheritance that is still yet to obtain, and that's eternal life. So inheritance here may not equal a chosen relationship. Inheritance may not equal a covenant. But inheritance does show the fruit of the covenant relationship. So the relationship with God through Jesus Christ begins as a covenant, but then somehow it grows into something that becomes a family relationship. Because we're guaranteed an inheritance. So, if inheritance is not the same thing as a covenant, what's Paul's point here? Paul's writing to the church in Ephesians, writing to Gentile Christians, encouraging them that just as God has promised an inheritance to His people, the nation of Israel, likewise, those through the blood of Christ receive the same inheritance as His children and as part of his family. You see, inheritance is given to children, right? Parental relationships with our family, they are not chosen, like I said. There is no covenant between generations. You just are. Amen? But the covenant between God and Israel that we see in Exodus chapter 24, we read that last week, the covenant made between God and His people established a relationship. God shows up and gives the people in Exodus chapter 24 the book of the covenant, the relationship that God expects between Him as God and Israel as His people. And the people of Israel respond back to God with words of covenant. We will obey you in Exodus 24. And that relationship with God and Israel... It began as a covenant. But somewhere over the generations, that became more like family. God looking over His children. As a matter of fact, you begin to call the nation of Israel, you know, the children of God. 
his family. Same thing happens here. This is what Paul speaks about here in Ephesians. Paul speaks to the Gentile Christians about the same idea. Paul says to them that the church of Ephesus, you may be Gentiles, but you know what? You and God's people, Israel, you're one and the same. Because just as the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, heard the word of truth and the gospel of salvation, and they believed in God... The same thing can be said about the Christians. We heard the word of truth, we heard the gospel of salvation, and we believed in Christ, and all of that ushers us in. God seals us with a covenant that then is, becomes this family. Now there's also I, there's, there's language here about adoption into the family of God. Right? If you're adopted into a family that may initially begin as a contract... If you've ever adopted anyone or if you've heard of anybody or talked to anybody who's ever went through adoption, how expensive it is because you've got legal fees. You've got lawyers involved to write up contracts. And the family who wants to adopt the child has to actually sign a contract in order to take the child home. Then there's this covenant in the beginning between the parents and this new child and they've got to work out their relationship. There's that season in that. But over time, that grows into something that's more than just a promise to each other. It then kind of becomes this family relationship that doesn't require promises. It's just trust. Does the same thing happen here with God? I think so. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3 with me, and we're going to close with this passage. Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 7 through 14, and we'll close with this. Galatians chapter 3. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia, talking about the same issue. He's writing to the Gentile Christians who are struggling with their identity with God because they are not the sons of Abraham. Right? This idea of the nation of Israel being the descendants of Abraham, they called themselves the sons of Abraham. It's like they're this big family. Where do the Gentiles belong? They're like these outsiders who showed up to the dining table. Look at verse 7, Galatians chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul is now describing more clearly if you are the the true son of Abraham, it's not that you've been born into the family. You are actually adopted into the family through faith. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's as if Paul is showing that God knew long before when he made this covenant with Abraham that he was going to create this family that he calls his children and that family was going to have enough room to bring in anybody who actually loves Christ, believes in the blood of Christ, and comes under the gospel of salvation through the blood. Verse verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Same language as in Ephesians chapter 1. You see where Paul's going here? You see, Gentile believers are blessed along with Abraham because believers are of faith like Abraham had faith. All this may begin as a covenant, but it seems like this covenant always grows into something else. And that's a family. That's why when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning as our opening passage, I wanted us to see this same theme throughout Scripture, that as we come together as Christians, as a family of God, we are more than just signing any kind of church covenant. Right? Yes, it's important to agree to commit to a church. Amen? Can we say that? We've got several in this church already who say, when are we going to join the church? Well, we're, 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 work, we're working on that formality, okay? That's why next week, February 3rd, I want us to take some time in our, our service next week for those who want to usher in a covenant with Sovereign Grace Baptist Church through membership. I want us to do that. I want us to begin that practice. And anyone else who comes after this time who comes to our church that God draws and brings to us, who feel like they belong here and they want to worship here and they want to be a part of this church body, we're going to take them through some of this teaching and we're going to say, okay, are you wanting to be a part of the family? Is this a commitment that you're going to make and not just show up for a year and go church hopping somewhere else? Because the pastor preached too long. And I think I'm at 40 minutes right now. I love you guys. You all tolerate my long sermons. I appreciate that. You see where I'm going? I mean, church membership is important. There was a time where it was assumed if you just walk the aisle and shake the preacher's hand, you're part of the church. But then, what happens to them? And I think all of us in this room, from the Bible study we started a couple of years ago till now, I think everyone who's here, I've talked with all of you, we're all in agreement. We don't want that kind of church membership process. We want people to know that when they join a church, there's something that's important here. We're going to start with a covenant with each other, signing a church covenant, but over time that church covenant should evolve into a family relationship. We love you. (laughs) When you don't show up at the table, we want to come and find out where you've been. Right? So that's kind of what I, I envision for us here because I see it in Scripture. Is that what we want? Amen? Amen. And so I want to ask you to pray about your commitment to this work called Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And I gave some people last week, uh, I emailed out last week a, a church covenant. And I meant to bring more copies today and I left those at my home. I apologize. But if you want a copy of the church covenant, I'll try to get one to you this week or, and, and you read over it. And you pray over it. 
And you ask yourself, do I want to join this body of believers? <laughs> and when I say join, I don't mean just say I want to come and worship whenever I'm in convenient. Right? I want to come and I want to be regularly attending worship. I want to regularly support the work. I want to regularly pray for my brothers and sisters, the family at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. I want to regularly be held accountable and called upon. (laughs) We've got some folks that we've seen over the last year or so who've come and gone, but where are they? If they want to be a part of our family here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, let's reach out to them and let's love them. Let's show them that we're not going to be legalistic, but we want to make sure you're okay. Amen? Amen? Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. And you show us throughout all of your scripture that you make a promise to redeem us. And dear God, you have never broken your end of the covenant. But we as sinful people throughout human history, we break, we break that covenant with you all the time. But God, I also see in your word that you show that there are those that you hold dear who never break the covenant. They're not perfect, but they stay loyal and dedicated in their trust of your mercy and grace. And those are the ones, dear God, that you say, those are mine, they belong to me. And I pray, dear God, here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, that we would be that. That you would look upon us as those who love you. Again, we're not perfect. We're going to fail. But God, we want to stick with you. And we want to stick with each other. Will you, dear God, show us your mercy and grace and shape us and make us into the men and women and the children that you want us to be. Make us into the family that you desire. And may we, dear God, respond in kind with loyalty, commitment, not only to the blood, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, to you, but also to each other. And may all that we do here please you. Please direct us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.